Great to see you today. Hey, before we jump into the message today, uh, I've been mentioning that Searchlight Theatre Company are coming back to Timberline, and on October the 13th, they're going to be here for a full-length play. It's called Chariots. It's based on the story of Eric Little. The movie Chariots of Fire came out of that story. And we've not made the tickets available in the foyer yet. They've just been available online. But I'm being told that they are moving faster than we anticipated. So I know it's October, which feels like 10 years away now. Um, but if you want to come to that evening, then check that out on the website. Well, we are continuing this off-road series. And last weekend, we were looking at Exodus 17, the first battle that the Hebrews ever fought against the Amalekites. And they went from there to Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. And Exodus 19, for a whole bunch of chapters, is about the law and the, uh, the principles of life and uh, God's law that they received at that mountain. Well, we're going to be looking at that, as you heard, in a greater detail later, uh, later in the fall. But we're going to jump forward six weeks now to Exodus uh, chapter 32. Now, I want you to notice that in the bulletin this weekend, there is a book recommended, uh, The Trivialization of God by Dr. Donald McCullough. I've recommended the book because it's really affected my thinking, and uh, I've, I've borrowed heavily on this, uh, this man's work for this message this weekend. If you want to follow this through in some more detail, uh, let me point you to that book. So let's have a look at Exodus 32. Um, you've, got to, you've got to serve somebody. How many know that that's the title of a song? Anyone remember that? Anyone old enough to remember the Bob Dylan song? Would you like me to sing it to you? Yeah. Tough. <laughs> Exodus 32. I'm not going to do that. It would really ruin your day. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down. Because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. A few weeks ago, um, the world's media was waiting, and finally, uh, the announcement was made that baby George had arrived, the future King of England. I don't know whether any of you watched on TV when they brought him out for the first time. The royal couple were waving, and baby George actually lifted a little finger and did a little wave too. He's starting his duties kind of early. We, we train them early over there. 
And there was quite a media frenzy around that uh, event. 25,000 tweets a minute on Twitter about uh, George's arrival. And it is estimated, I can't get over this, that because he has arrived, $400 million will be added to the British economy this year just because people want to go out and buy the baby seat that they're using for their car. What's happening is that we tend to follow along and uh, it's going to have an economic impact. But what's been interesting to me has been the kind of media coverage and fascination in the USA. Because let's face it, people, you've got the 4th of July. <laughs> so what do you care, right? And I mean, I say that tongue in cheek, but, but it, people are sociologists and theologians have been asking the question, why the interest in this baby over there? Now, there are a number of factors behind that. First of all, let's face it, babies are adorable, right? So we're interested in babies, and as a grandfather, something happens to me now when I see a baby. I, I contort my face into strange, twisted contortions, even stranger than this. And I talk in a little bit of a voice like this. To the baby, and the baby's probably looking at me thinking, why don't you just talk normal, dude? You know, what's wrong with you? Then, not only are babies adorable, but it's interesting to me that for some Americans, there is, a, there is a, an interest in, in, in the Brits. Uh, I have, Kay and I have been treated with irrational kindness here. One of the reasons we love this country, and we're not citizens, we're, we're resident aliens, nanu, nanu. <laughs> But there's this kind of fascination thing. I was in Texas one time, and a guy came up to me, and he, he said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from England. And he said, wow, you speak English so well. <laughs> I mean, duh. And then we're obsessed with celebrities, aren't we? We want to know what relationships they're in and what their health food purchases are, and we've got magazines dedicated to all of that. But I'm asking a question. Some theologians are asking this question this week. And it's a question, not a statement. Is there something in us that longs for a good, righteous king? Forget politics, forget nationality in that statement. Is there something in the structure of a soul that longs for the idea of a true king who will come and reign and rule with righteousness and bring the shalom of a kingdom in peace? The biblical revelation seems to state very clearly that we as humans are designed to live in a kingdom. Eden was a kingdom with a king, a kingdom that is a paradise lost. And that's interesting because our culture seems to celebrate personal freedom, just do it as the way to liberation, whereas actually... As Christians, we believe that God has stated that we are designed, if you will, to be ruled by the one true king of kings and lord of lords. We want royalty in the divine sense. But that hunger can also lead us astray. 
because historically there have been times in Israel's history where they were so desperate for a king that they wanted a king they could see, and that led them astray. In 1 Samuel 8, for example, God was their king, but listen to what happens here. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Maybe that's what fueled this disastrous episode in Exodus 32. Moses had been gone for six weeks, communing with God on the mountain. Maybe they're restless. They're nervous. What if the Amalekites come back? Who's going to lead us? We don't know what's happened to this fellow Moses. And so now they want something tangible, and they make an idol. And what happens here is one of the pivotal moments of the Exodus story. The apostle Paul selects this moment as he writes to the Corinthians. He points to this episode, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolatrous, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, we might think, sure, of course, Corinth was a place infested with idolatry, so, of course, the Apostle Paul made that statement because archaeology shows us, I think we've got some images of Corinth here that shows us that there was all kinds of strange idolatrous worship that was uh, taking place uh, in, in Corinth. Surely it's relevant to them. But I want to suggest to us this morning that it's relevant to us too. Because idolatry is not just about the things that we put before the Lord in terms of our priorities and worship, but it's more complicated than that. And actually, in terms of where we are in history, we are ideally set up to idolatry. So let's, let's dive into this serious stuff if you're following along in the bulletin. First of all, let's realize Idolatry is not just about replacing God, but trying to revise God. It's not just about trying to replace him, but trying to revise him. Aaron took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I want you to notice something here. They make an idol, bad, then they call a festival to the Lord, good. They build an altar to the Lord, good. They offer fellowship offerings, good. They offer burnt offerings, good. Some of this stuff was good, mingled in with what was very, very bad. The calf represented God on their terms. And notice something too. Theologically, they've already gone astray because they say, these are the gods What's wrong with that? There's only one God. And so already they've gone astray. They've tried to revise God. And we can do the same. George Bernard Shaw said, God made man in his image. Unfortunately, man has returned the favor. A contemporary of Shaw's sociologist Emil uh, Durkheim said, look at this, every tribe society invents a God who reflects its values, standards, 
aspirations, hopes, ambitions, and attitudes, and then worships it, thus legitimizing its own standards of behavior. Think about this. Where we are in history means that we can so easily fall into the trap of trying to revise God. For one thing, we have a loss of mystery. A loss of mystery. We, we think we can figure everything out. When Sir Isaac Newton, the physicist in the 18th century, discovered the laws of gravitation and motion, as a believer, he thought he was discovering the laws that God has set in motion, as indeed he was. But ever since then, there's been this, this kind of thinking in our culture that science can explain everything. We'll figure it out eventually in the end. We're not very much at home with mystery anymore. And then we live with informational hyperspeed. Informational hyperspeed as well, which leads to impatience. How many, come on, just confess, how many of you like me, if your computer takes three seconds longer than usual, to start up, you get frustrated. I'm never going to get that three seconds back. You got a question? Ask Google. Neil Postman, who's a professor of communications, talks about how we are bombarded every day with disconnected information that overwhelms us, and we're used to having all the answers now. And God doesn't always do that. He didn't tell the Israelites where Moses was, how long they were going to be there. He didn't just provide the answers. They couldn't just Google it. Thirdly, there's rampant individualism as well. Kind of approach to spirituality where people just say, well, it is what I want it to be. This week I read about a lady called Sheila. And Sheila says this, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. Can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. I call it Sheilaism. Just my own little voice. That's the culture that we're living in. Just, well, what, what, whatever, whatever works. Are we aware that this stuff is happening, coupled with relativist pressure as well? This golden calf... This linked to Israel's history because the Egyptians worshipped a bull god called Apis. It also linked to their current situation because the Canaanites worshipped a bull that symbolized the Baal worship. So they're kind of fitting in already to what's going on around them. Let's be aware where we are in history, we could very easily be prone to the temptation to revise God. So let's think, secondly, about some examples of revisions that we can fall into. Some examples of revisions. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. What are some of the ways that we can try and revise God? Well, we can turn him into the God of my cause the God of my cause. I meet Christians, and they think that God only cares about what they primarily care about. And they get locked in, listen carefully, otherwise you'll misunderstand, to single-issue Christianity, which is always unbalanced. And they get passionate. They, want to, they only want to talk about the second coming, or Calvinism, or Arminianism, or not being charismatic, or being charismatic, or homeschooling, or Israel, one thing. Am I saying these issues are not important? Of course they are. But what we can get into is getting locked into one, and that's unhealthy. 
And then we start to edit and think that God is interested in what I'm passionate about, but let's not worry about anything else. And so vital subjects like some people get really fired up rightly about abortion, but ignore the issue of divorce. They want to talk about sexuality, but they're not interested in discussing the environment. God is only fired up about what I'm fired up about. It's unhealthy. Archbishop William Temple said, the more distorted a person's idea of God and the more passionately committed they are to it, the more damage they will do. Hear me carefully. Let's not just get locked into one issue. And then there's the God of my understanding. The God of my understanding. If I can't understand it, well, it can't be true. I meet Christians like that. Well, I, I don't get it, so I don't believe it. How many know there are lots of things about God that we don't understand, and we need to walk in humility. C.S. Lewis talked about chronological snobbery. You know what chronological snobbery is? It's the idea that because we live in 2013, that we, above every other human being that has ever lived, that we know best. We need to walk humbly before God. When God decided to invent beetles, and I mean the insect, not the group, <laughs> just to be clear, he didn't just make one species, he made 300,000 species of beetles and weevils. Do I get everything? No. But we can still remain humble and have a learning attitude. And as Dustin was sharing earlier about a tragic situation, some of us are trusting in situations right now that we just do not understand. God bless you for doing that. That's faith. Faith doesn't always know Faith is willing at times to trust in the place of unknowing. Then there's the God of my experience. The God of my experience. He'll only do what he does with me. Let me illustrate that. What can happen is that obviously there are absolutes in the Bible that are true for all Christians. But we can have a sense that God is speaking to us about an area of behavior that is not prohibited in Scripture, but for us it's wrong. Okay? We've just decided, we sense that God has said, no, don't do that. But what we then do is make that view into the way God always deals with everybody. And we've just tiptoed into legalism. Let's not do that. Then there's the God of my comfort. The God of my comfort. God wouldn't make any demands on me that would embarrass me or that might be awkward. Just, he just wants me to be comfortable. Folks, and I speak to that as a pastor. Here at Timberline, we especially want our guests to feel at home here. We never want people to feel like we're pushing them around, when it, for example, when it comes to worship. And we often say we want you to be comfortable. But you know what? There's a downside to that. Because the heart of worship is sacrifice. And there are times when we need to not be comfortable, but just worship God. Not as spectators, but actually as participants. Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, he said, we've become confused about who's doing what in worship. He said, we think of worshipers as an audience, ministers as entertainers, and God as the prompter, when in fact the worshipers are the performers, the pastors are the prompters, and God is the audience. We come to worship Him, whether it's comfortable or not. Then there's the God of my success. I want you to call the number on the toll-free screen right now. 
and I will pray a prayer, and I will send you a package of prosperity containing some water from the Holy Land, and you will be rich because God wants everyone to be rich. It's interesting that when that idea is pervade, we forget that we follow a Jesus who said foxes of holes and birds of nests, but the Son of Man has got no place to lay his head and then ended up on a cross. Surely we need to redefine what success is. Here's the one that potentially could be a little interesting, particularly with my accent. The God of my nation. Where we don't just love and celebrate our nation. I mean, I, I, I love America. I'm not a citizen. I'm a, I'm a resident alien. Nanu, nanu. But we must never worship our nation. And I can say this because I come from a nation that has tried that and it didn't really work. Rule Britannia. Britannia rules the waves. It doesn't rule much now. And actually, this idea that we worship our nation, if we're not careful, we can cross a line. Britannia in the second century in Roman Britain was uh, personified as a goddess, armed with a trident and a shield, wearing a Corinthian helmet. Come to England, I'll show you one of our coins. It's got that symbol on it. While we love and appreciate our, our nation, and I'm happy and grateful today that I can sit here and freely say what I say and celebrate freedom, but let's never cross the line. Hey, God should define our politics, but our politics should never define God. There is a difference. And whoever the emperor is, whether he rides on an elephant or whether he or she rides on a donkey, whoever, we as Christians should always be hesitant citizens who realize that we are Christian before we are fill-in-the-blank, American, British, whatever. Our primary citizenship is of the kingdom of God. And we must always remember that Jesus, the one that we follow, was executed by the state. And therefore, be thoughtful about this. And everybody said, amen. It's tough stuff. We love and appreciate and celebrate, but let's never cross the line into something different. Have we unthinkingly revise God in these or any other areas. Well, the third thing is that when we try to revise God, when we try to revise God, our behavior and ethics will deteriorate. When we try and revise him, our behavior and ethics will deteriorate. Verse 6, so the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings, and afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. It's quite a party. The Hebrew word for revelry normally has sexual overtones. This thing descended into something very ugly. Why? Because they were serving now an undemanding dead God. R.C. Sproul says, The cow gave no law, demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by humans, practiced by humans, and ultimately useless. 
for humans. The calf would never say no. How many parents here know that no is a good word? When you love somebody, you say no. Yesterday, I Skyped my grandkids in England, and little Alex was there. Alex is 18 months old, and now we call him Danger Mouse. Because he's into everything, and he thinks that he is completely impervious to pain. So I'm talking to him on Skype, and he's, he's, just, he's just learned to say, you know, hi, granddad. And, and he's learning to say things that will guarantee my assistance for his college years later in life. <laughs> and while I'm talking to him, uh, and then Stanley comes on, then Danger Mouse slips off, and he's standing on the table. 5,786 miles away, I say, Alex, no! Why? Because I love Alex. And his parents were there, and they swept him up. And you see, love says no. God sometimes says no. And it's not likely that we're going to end up worshipping a golden calf. I mean, look at that. We're, we're probably not going to go for that. We've got a different version of some, a God that we worship if we're not careful. It, it looks like this. There you go. The God who always says yes. Yeah. You want to go and do something really stupid and destructive? It's going to mess up your life and somebody else says, yeah, sure. That's not God. Because God loves us, he at times will say no. And maybe some of us this week, we've been trying to get him to nod his head and he's not going to change his mind. And it's amazing the excuses that we can come up with when we want God to always say yes. Exodus 32, Moses is ticked with Aaron. He's kind of like, what are you thinking moment. And Aaron is trying to excuse his behavior. Here's what Aaron says. He says, then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> wow, we can rationalize, can't we? Some of us perhaps needing to say yes to God's no rather than the nodding dog God. And if you think, kind of, that's, kind of, that's kind of offensive to talk about a nodding dog God. I'll tell you what's really offensive is to treat him like that. Fourthly, the ultimate expression of what God is truly like. The ultimate expression of what God is truly like, Jesus Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is the real thing. I've told the story before about Lloyd Douglas. Remember Lloyd Douglas? He's the author of The Robe, the novel that was turned into the movie. Lloyd Douglas lived in a boarding house on the second floor. On the first floor was a retired music professor, a disabled gentleman, 
who uh, was unable to get out of his apartment, used a wheelchair. And every morning, Lloyd Douglas and this gentleman went through this morning ritual. I don't know what your morning rituals are like, but Lloyd Douglas would come down the stairs, crack open the door, and he'd say, good morning, sir. What's the good news today? And this gentleman, would, this music professor, would take out his tuning fork and strike the side of his wheelchair, and he would say, well, the good news is that's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It'll be middle C tomorrow. And a thousand years from now, it'll still be middle C. And the guy would say, the tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But that, sir, is middle C. I want us to know today that there is a middle C. His name is Jesus. And the ultimate revelation of who God is like or what God is like, Hebrews chapter 1, is found in Christ. Someone has said with theological brilliance but grammatical challenges, if it doesn't look like Jesus, it ain't God because He's the ultimate revelation. And as part of this message today, I want to lift them up. I want us to exalt Him together. I'm not going to embarrass anybody here. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say because the person is sitting in this congregation right now. Just half an hour or so ago, I had a conversation with a friend that I've been chatting with over the years who've walked through numbers of cancer treatments, doing it again, facing it again. But her eyes were bright with Jesus. When the circumstances are in D minor, there's a middle C, one that we can trust in when we don't understand. The good news that we can depend upon, this lavish love that has been given to us. This is no vague spirituality to get you through. This is the rock. There is a king of kings. His name isn't George. It's Jesus. That's what we celebrate. That's our hope. That's our strength. This is the one. Whatever else that is good that we love and appreciate and are grateful for, he alone is worthy of our worship. And the congregation said, let's pray. Lord, we praise you because you are worthy of our worship. You alone are worthy. And we come before you as we find ourselves in a place of, in history where we are so accustomed to the answers right now on demand. We want to come back again to the God of revelation, yet the God of mystery, and worship you. Lord, as we sit beneath the counsel of your word today, we pray that the false gods that we create when we try to amend you, revise you, make you to be what we want you to be, that they will come tumbling down.
As our heads are bowed, I think some of us are feeling a very specific challenge about the nodding God. We've been really trying hard to get God to say yes to what we know is wrong. We've even, some of us, fooled ourselves into believing that he's just so nice he would never say no, and it's deception. And the good news is that grace and forgiveness is available, but we do need to agree with God and align ourselves and stop trying to change him when his desire is to change us from one degree of glory to another. As our heads are bowed, some of us know that very specifically we've been trying to get God to be the nodding God. And it's time this morning to say yes to his no. If you find yourself in that place, I'd love to pray with you that God's grace and strength will be yours and just agree with you about that. Can I ask you if there's a specific situation where you find that to be true? Would you slip up your hand for a moment, please? Just hold it there. As a way of saying, God, I, I want to surrender to your verdict. Thank you for being brave enough to do that. You can put your hands down. Secondly, very important, in this message, I've wanted to lift up our God as the only one worthy of worship. Maybe today you're looking for a king. You always thought that liberation came from independence from him, but it doesn't. You were made to not be by yourself, but to walk in relationship with King Jesus. A king is here. As our heads are bowed, if you are not a Christian today, maybe this is your first time here, maybe you've been here many times, and you'd like to change that, you want to make that choice to surrender to him and invite him to take charge of your life. Accept his forgiveness. He's died on a cross to make that happen. He's raised now from the dead. If that is your choice, as I look around, as our heads are bowed, can I ask you please, right now, just slip up your hand for a moment to say, yeah, I make that choice. I want to invite him to take charge. Do it now, please. Lord, we thank you that we can come and sit beneath your loving, gracious rule and reign. For those of us who are surrendering to your no, grant us strength and grace to follow through. Help us not to wrestle with you, trust you. We pray for those who are trusting you in a D minor episode, bring them back to the middle sea of your unchanging grace. And for any of us, Lord, who don't know you, who are continuing to try and figure it all out by ourselves, strive with us. May it be, Lord, that we surrender to you and discover peace with God as we step into your kingdom. So we give you praise and thanks as we worship you alone. We agree together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Lord, we thank you because this is far more than a nice song. But a thousand years from now, 
and a million years from now, Jesus, you'll still be the middle sea. We praise you, lift you up. Some of us, Lord, in this moment, we lift you up in the place of shadows. Some of us in this moment, we lift you up, Jesus, in the place of plenty and blessing. But we exalt you, the name above every name. At that name, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we say, Amen and Amen and Amen. In Jesus' name. Hey, hug 43 people before you go. Prayer team are here. If we can pray with you, we'd love to. God bless you.